Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Listeners, I have a very exciting announcement to share with you. The True Crime Podcast Festival is back for 2022. The festival gives listeners the opportunity to mix and mingle with some of their favorite true crime and now paranormal podcasts. Who knows, you may even find a new one. The festival is being held in Dallas, Texas from August 26th through the 28th. The Good Pods app is a great way to follow the shows and even listen to a curated playlist of their most talked about episodes. Right now, we still have some early bird tickets available, so you can head to truecrimepodcastfestival.com to buy your tickets. I'm going to put the link in the show notes for you, so don't worry. I'll also provide a link to the Good Pods app because it honestly is the best way to listen to podcasts. If you want more of me and more true crime topics in your life, download the Spotify Green Room app today. Every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, I host a show called True Crime Convos. I talk about pretty much anything related to true crime. If you have a case suggestion, feel free to let me know what it is, and I'll see you on the Spotify Green Room app. Have you ever been listening to the show and think to yourself, wow, I really wish I could just subscribe to their ad-free content, but there's so many apps involved to do that. Well, Apple Podcast has made it possible for you to subscribe to the show and get the ad-free content straight through the app. So we've made it available to all of our listeners on Apple Podcasts. So if you're interested in ad-free content, you can subscribe starting today. Explicit content is found in this episode. So listener discretion is advised. Okay, on to the show. So, hey, everyone, I am Lainey Hobbs, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, the It's Haunted What Now podcast, and the Spotify original from Parcast called It's Haunted What Now. I am hosting True Crime Convos on Spotify Live, and I wanted to do kind of um, a mixture of doing Spotify live while also hosting a live stream at the same time. I don't know how it's going to go. I might give up midway, Um, but I want to get everybody, you know, who's in the room. We give people some time before we start. So before we start every live stream, we always ask people for um, their ASL. And it's a lot of fun sometimes when uh, we have new people joining us, uh, people who haven't been on you know the live stream at any point we always have them on to um to mention like their asl so welcome everybody to true crime convos i am excited to get started tonight i know it says we're talking about drew peterson but unfortunately our researcher who helps me out because i obviously have a lot to um research write talk about etc um, so I get help in that area. So they unfortunately are a little behind. So we will be talking about Drew Peterson next week 
This week, we're going to be talking about Deborah Green, who is still just as uh, as messed up as uh, Drew Peterson. So trust me, we'll be happy to have this discussion <laughs> about him. Um, I mentioned earlier, for those who are just now joining us, uh, that we typically start our chat off with our ASL. So if you know the deal with that, go ahead and put it in the chat. I'm Lainey. I am a 34-year-old female, cis female, she and her pronouns, and I live in Dallas. So I am excited to talk about Deborah Green tonight. Absolutely interesting individual. I think a lot of you might be frustrated with um, her background, (laughs) her general sense of self. I think it'll be really, you know, interesting for everybody to hear about her. So yes, tonight, I know you were probably like, yes, Drew Peterson. But like I mentioned earlier, our individual who helps us, Olivia, she's amazing, um, is falling a little bit behind on the research. So we're giving her (laughs) a break until next week so that she can get it all together. And then we'll be ready to go. All right. So tonight we are talking about Deborah Green. So I always like to dive into people's early childhood first. And Deborah was born in Havana, Illinois on February 28th, 1958. So her parents are Joan um, and Bob Jones. And they had a daughter um, before her, actually. So Joan was a homemaker. Bob worked for a bakery company. And he started as a driver, but then he ended up moving up the chain a little bit. And really grew within that uh, company. Now, Deborah grew up in Havana. I have no, I have like no idea about Havana whatsoever, other than Cuba. So she grew up there until she was in high school, and then her family moved to Metamora, Illinois, and then Peoria, Illinois, where uh, Bob was eventually relocated for his job. Now, when she was in school or when she was, you know, after she graduated high school, she was pushed a lot by her mom to go to college um, because Joan didn't get an opportunity to go herself. And so she was always just like, listen, I was pregnant with my first daughter really young and I felt like I couldn't go to school. So I really want you, you know, to do that for yourself. Now, an amazing thing for Deborah is that she was... um showing signs of high intelligence at a really young age. Um, According to her doctor, not her doctor, her uncle. Wow, sorry. According to her uncle, she was around two and a half years old by the time she taught herself how to read. Um, And then she would later be tested and found to have an IQ of 165. Um, She is incredibly smart. I think which makes this all so difficult to kind of understand and wrap my brain around it. Um, She really was. Um, So she was exceeding expectations in the IQ and knowledge department, right, for her family. And then when she was in high school, she was in all of these extracurricular activities. I'm sure we all kind of know somebody who's like that, who's just like the star student, and then they do all of these extracurriculars and it's something they actually like to do. It's not something their parents are always pushing them to do, but something they're just kind of doing for themselves. You also have those people who parent, whose parents like push them to do that stuff. But 
in Deborah's case, it was a mixture of both. Like Joan really wanted her to do her best, but then she was also kind of invigorated by, you know, joining these different clubs. She was like National Merit Scholar, Student Council, Concert Choir, French Club, like so many things. She was co-valid uh, Victorian of her graduating class and graduated in 1969. So she takes her mom's advice and she's like, fine, I'll go to school. It wasn't something she wasn't not considering. So she starts school at the University of Illinois in 1969, and she majored in chemistry and pre-med. And then she graduated in three years, 1972. I think I've met maybe four people when I was in college who were like that. Um, I went to UTSA, which is the University of Texas at San Antonio. And they had a program basically where you would go to UTSA for maybe a semester and then you would, um, you know, or a year, I think. And then if you did really well and your GPA was great, then you would basically be a shoe in to go to UT in Austin, which is like highly desirable. It's the school you want to go to. So I had a lot of friends from my high school that went to UTSA with me. I decided to stay at UTSA. Um, I really liked San Antonio a lot. So it wasn't something I, you know, didn't want to stay. You know, I wanted to stay there. Anyway, back to Deborah. So she ends up applying to medical school and she gets accepted to the University of Kansas School of Medicine. I think we had somebody in here um, recently that said they were from Kansas. So shout out to you guys. Also, all of my friends who live in Kansas are all considering leaving Kansas now. So it's really kind of crazy because sometimes I like Kansas. Very strange. Anyways, so she goes to medical school in 1972 and then ends up graduating in 75. And she ends up choosing emergency medicine as her specialty because she really did like the ER rotations um, the best. And she stated that um, her resident, or sorry, she chose or was selected for the residency at the Truman Medical Center ER. Um, she was the type of person who, <laughs> Tate too is like, yes, goodbye. Um, she was the type of person who never studied for anything. Like even in medical school, all of this stuff just kind of came to her. She just like was able to retain the information. But this obviously would be, um, if you're familiar with Deborah's uh, case, <laughs> I would say that obviously it proves to be a mistake later on. Now, this whole, this whole case is crazy. And yes, also same thing. I, in, um, I think in high school and in general, like in my non-collegiate education, I was pretty much the same way. It's like, I can retain information if I'm interested in it for sure. And then just go for it. I never studied in school at all whatsoever. I probably would have done better had I studied, but I just don't have like the, the focus or the capacity to do that. Um, it's really amazing that I even had the focus and capacity to, to research, but it's all stuff I was interested in when I was starting the podcast and everything. So I, um, when I got to college, that was a little, uh, strange for me because I was like, oh, I actually, I don't know anything about this content, et cetera. So I guess I need to study. So I like, unfortunately, very late in life learned how to <laughs> study and it was very, um, annoying to do. I think it's a, a wake up call. So even if you don't like to study, make sure you study. 
All right. So while Deborah was at the University of Illinois, so we're going back to when she was at U of I, or I don't know what they call it, Illy University. I don't know what they call it over there. University of Illinois. Um, she met an engineer student named Dwayne Green. And so he ends up following her to KU after they graduated and then they got married. Then they end up moving to Independence, Missouri, so that she could finish her residency at the Truman Medical Center. And <laughs> how sad is this? So Deborah said that as soon as they got married, she was like, why are we married? This makes no sense. We have nothing in common. And so Duane was also like, yeah, yeah same I uh, don't know why we're married. And then they ended up getting a divorce in 1978. The divorce was probably the most amicable relationship that um, <laughs> Deborah Green will ever and has ever been in. So then we move on to Michael Farrar. And Deborah met Michael during his last year of medical school. And he was doing an emergency room rotation at the Truman Medical Center. He was four years younger than her. and. Um, she was separated from Duane at the time, but they weren't legally divorced until December of 1978. So after they started dating, Michael and Deborah were like, hey, let's move in together. So they end up living together at Deborah's residence. Now, Michael is from Lawrence, Kansas, but he was raised in Kansas City, Missouri. His father, William, was an inspector, a food inspector for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and a colonel in the Air Force Reserves. His mother, Velma, was a great grade school teacher, and he has two sisters. Now, according to Michael, the romance was not a passionate coming together or a matter of one seducing the other, his words and not mine. And Deborah was attracted to Michael's intelligence. She knew that he would be a good doctor. And to her, that meant that he would be able to provide financial stability for her and then for their eventual family if they decided to have kids. And for Michael, he was really attracted to Deborah's intelligence, the success that she had um, gained pretty early on in her career, her sense of humor, and her wit. But with that attraction also came kind of the toxicity and red flags that would later plague their relationship. So Michael is honest and says like, or, you know, said that he saw the immediate red flags with Deborah. He would say that her temper was unbelievable. She would get extremely angry and had a hair trigger temper. She would get angry over little things like someone parking in a parking space she wanted, which I need a GIF if you've ever been guilty of that. Like, I'm getting unreasonably angry about these things. I think I've done that before where I've, I've been like, oh, my God, you SOB, dude. I wanted that, especially if your blinker was on and they still try and go in your spot. Like, hello? So rude. Um, yeah, that's just me, though, maybe. Hopefully, I'm not alone in that. <laughs> oh, you can give me your best, like, road rage GIFs, especially in Texas. My gosh. The manner of which like people get so upset on the road, especially on the highway. I hate driving on 75. We're probably the most aggressive drivers in the country. I wouldn't be surprised if Dallas came in first and that, and I drive like a maniac. 
but a defensive driver, I would say. That's me. Um, so yeah, I, I could, if I can drive in Dallas, I feel like I can drive anywhere, but back to them. So he's just like, yeah, kind of crazy that she gets upset about these little things, but not enough for me to consider not being in a relationship with her. And then he recognized that when they were planning their wedding, that really everything was about what Deborah wanted, what Deborah cared about. And it was really all about her. Like she took Bridezilla to the extreme. Who remembers that show? I don't even think it's on anymore, but that was a show I was so excited about because people are just crazy. And then it obviously became fake over time. But that's basically how he was like, oh, that's a little not great. And then (laughs) basically, Lana, yes. So he wondered, you know, this whole time, like, why did she marry me? Because she didn't seem to care about him. And it also, I feel like it's a twofold question. Like, why would you be in a relationship with somebody who you had to question if they cared about you or not? Um, You know, I kind of would reflect back and say, uh, why did you stay with her? The relationship lacked affection, caring, intimacy, Um, and for him, his whole, you know, response and the reason why he, he chose to be with her was ultimately like he loved her intelligence and wit more than, you know, anything else. And for him, that was kind of worth it. And I don't know, I think sometimes with individuals who have kind of that personality type, that's like extremely analytical like some people in the medical profession do. Like I have a really great friend who is a doctor and he is just like, he's so funny, but he also is just like extremely analytical. And so for me, it would be hard um, to be in a relationship with him, which is why he's my friend (laughs) and not anything more and never would be because he's my best friend's husband. So, Um, but you know, like I still love him. So care about him and everything. I'm just like, oh my gosh, our personalities would clash. I would probably kill you. Um, you know, because he's, he's analytical to the point where you're like, okay, sometimes things just can be left alone. Um, and that's kind of how Deborah was same way. And so I feel like maybe sometimes with two analytical people, they can look at it in a, in a way that doesn't bring feelings attached to it. If that makes sense. Tell me if I'm making sense. Like if that makes sense (laughs) whatsoever, that's kind of how, that's kind of the excuse I'm giving it, like why Michael would have overlooked Deborah's temper because intelligence and wit alone to me is not a lot <laughs> to to base off of, you know, what happens next. But that was basically what he said. Now, the other red flag was that Deborah hated his family. And that bothered him a lot because he really cared about his family. He was close to his family. And I don't know. I don't know. I'm like, I'm really close to my family. So if you were like, I don't like your mom, I don't like your brother, I don't like your nieces and stuff like that, I'd be like, cool. Then I don't like you. <laughs> you know what I mean? How I, I guess in the chat, let me know if that would be a deal breaker for you. So like my husband doesn't have the best relationship with his family. And so it was weird for him to see me talk to my mom, my brother, my grandma, pretty much every single day, morning, noon, and night. 
um, or texting them, you know, like we have a group chat, family chat, that type of thing. And for him, when I first met him, he like never really talked to his family except like during holidays. And for me, that's like really strange because I don't know if it's a cultural thing or or what, but like it really is kind of, it was off-putting for me to be like, you don't talk to your mom? Like you don't, you know, you don't talk to your sister? Like it was very strange. And then vice versa for him to see me, you know, constantly have this connection with my family. I get it. So I don't know. But yes, uh, it would be, it would be strange, but I'm also like thankful that I am close to my family because they I feel like love Brett more than me. (laughs) I feel like they prefer Brett over me, which hurts my feelings. And I hope my mom is listening um, because it's rude. Just kidding. Um, Okay. So obviously that bothered him. Now they ended up getting married in May of 1979. And he recalled getting cold feet as he saw Deborah walking down the aisle And it was a little too late by then, but he had realized like, oh, crap, I'm making a mistake marrying this woman. Um, And unfortunately, he would be right. Now, on their wedding night, Deborah did not want to have sex with Michael. She said, I would rather read a book instead. And so he kind of let her. But then he was kind of like, hey, we should consummate a relationship, coaxed her into it. And then she ended up... um, having sex with him consensually. And then after she finished or when they were finished, she went back to reading her book. Um, And that's important to note because her non-interest in sex would continue. Michael was an intimate person who wanted to have sexual relations with his wife. And it bothered him that she really couldn't be bothered to um, be intimate with him. And that's okay. Like if, if, individual like if somebody is not interested in having sex then it's it's fine right but they should be in a relationship with somebody who understands that and who doesn't have the same or the opposite desires that they have they should have the same desires um so it for michael showed that deborah was really only focused on her needs and or lack of her needs i guess um and didn't really care about what he wanted that She kind of called the shots in that whole situation. Um, So Deborah opted to keep Green as her last name um, for professional reasons. She did not want to become Deborah Farrar. So she kept her um, first married name. Now, when it came time for Michael to take a residency, he chose internal medicine at the University of Cincinnati. And Deborah decides to move with Michael and they started, you know, she started her own work as an ER physician at a Jewish hospital, but she didn't like dealing um, with the often kind of, you think of emergency medicine as being like so exciting and on your feet all the time and like crazy, but sometimes you get just like slow days, if you will, mundane cases, like ear infections, rashes, boils, cysts, all that type of fun stuff. Um, So she was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to go ahead and start a fellowship. Um, And this time she was like, I'll go for internal medicine too um, and and work on an internal medicine program. So 
While they were living in Cincinnati, Deborah faced a lot of medical issues. She had to have surgery on an infected wrist. She was diagnosed with cerebellar migraines and insomnia. And so this is when Michael thinks that Deborah started abusing painkillers and sleeping pills um, at the time. So Michael found many pill bottles with patients' names on them. And that meant to him that she was actually taking her patients' medication, which was a big red flag for him again. But, you know, you kind of have that uh, that rock in a hard place. And I don't know, Shannon, maybe you can kind of speak to this, but because Shannon said, hashtag nurse life, been there, done that. Thank you for your service in the healthcare industry. Um, if you had a partner who was in the, you know, medical field with you, and if you even do kind of, I'm I'm kind of curious what your response would be to knowing they were taking patient medication. Like, would you be reporting them or would you want to get them help? You know, obviously every situation is different, um, but I think it's, it's good to have some perspective since we can't ask Michael or Deborah, you know, what his thought process was behind finding something like that out. Like, I think I would be torn between those two things. Like, I want to get you help, but I also want to, you know, I don't know. I have no idea, you know? Shannon says, I don't, but that is super unethical. I would try to help her. Yeah, so I I, I would think so too. Hey, Daniel, I would, I think that's what I would do. Like, my grace would show a little bit more there because... I don't know that I would want to ruin somebody's life over a mistake like that. If, if it was truly like, you know, they had an addiction because we all know like drug use and addiction is an affliction, right? It, it's not something, it's a disease that can really quickly take over, especially with like the opioid pandemic or blah, 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 the opioid crisis that's happening, et cetera. So that's kind of where we're at. So we're talking about Deborah Green tonight and we were just talking about um, her second husband, who was also a physician, um, finding out that she started abusing painkillers and sleeping pills at the same time, and that he would find uh, a lot of pill bottles that had patients' names on them, which meant that she was taking her patients' medications. Um, So we were just discussing if we would be wanting to offer them help versus reporting them, or would we do both, et cetera, just trying to get the feel for the room. And our lovely resident nurse, Shannon, answered our question. So, yeah, I think it would be, um, I think it would be really hard. And if it was my best friend, um, she's a nurse practitioner, you know, she's working really, really hard. But if she somehow slipped into like the throes of addiction, my first inclination would be to make sure she got help first and then figure out what to do next. I would not want her life ruined. By going and saying, hey, she took these medications because ultimately, you know, I don't know. I feel like the people probably still got their medications or, you know, that somehow that part was somehow fixed. As long as somebody didn't like adversely suffer, meaning they didn't lose their lives because they didn't have it or something like that, then I wouldn't feel that bad. But I also would kind of put it on her to self-report, you know, or something like that. I have no idea. Um, Shannon says, it's not worth ruining someone's after being recovering addict you totally understand all sides yeah so you know what I mean like it's it's really difficult um and yes very happy for your recovery Shannon again thank you for sharing your insight with us and we are always supporting 
our healthcare workers on this side. This episode is sponsored by Ana Luisa. Ana Luisa, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A, drops a new jewelry collection every Friday that gives you plenty of time to not rush around and look for a quick gift for your mom or the mother in your life. I have a lot of new moms that I'm excited to get pieces of jewelry for. Here's a great thing. Pieces start as low as $39. They have necklaces, rings, ear cuffs, which I had no idea that was a thing. And I know that's going to be the perfect gift for one of the moms in my life. She likes really understated jewelry, and Ana Luisa has it all for everyone. So don't scramble around this Mother's Day and try and find something that works for them. Really take the time and check out Ana Luisa's jewelry. That's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A. So here's what you need to do. Go to shop.analuisa.com slash TCFC. Make Mom's Day and treat her to new jewelry pieces with Ana Luisa's buy one, get one 40% off sale. So one piece for her and one piece for you. Once again, you go to shop.analuisa.com slash TCFC. And trust me, I know you'll love them. I even did a little sneak peek of what I got on my Instagram page. There's honestly nothing more important than taking care of yourself. Because if you're not feeling your best, you can't be your best. Sambucol helps you feel your best with powerful immune support, powered by nature's superfruit, black elderberry. Now listen, I'm a new mom, so I don't have time to feel down and out, so I make sure to incorporate my Sambucol in my everyday life. It has been something really, really important to start off my day. I feel like I'm taking control with Sambucol because it helps support my immune system, and I feel like I'm doing my body good by taking Sambucol every day. It has a great taste. I honestly love the gummies the best. So sometimes I feel like starting off my day with a nice warm cup of water. And I'll actually use the Sambucol drink powder in there. And it tastes so good. It's really, really refreshing and makes me feel like it's an easy thing to incorporate into my wellness routine. Best of all, Sambucol is a trusted brand. It's the original black elderberry and was developed by a virologist. So I know I'm getting a great quality product, and you can too. Get 15% off your next order of $9.99 or more at SambucolUSA.com. Use FAN15 for 15% off. That's SambucolUSA.com. Use FAN15 for 15% off. S-A-M-B-U-C-O-L-U-S-A.com. Use FAN15 for 15% off. So another poor choice is made um, because Michael, you know, again, red flags all around with Deborah. But then they decide that they want to kind of expand their family. So her first or their first child is born in 1982 and it was a son and his name was Tim. So she ends up taking a six week maternity leave to stay home with him. And when her leave was up, she returned to the fellowship um, or she chose a new fellowship. She chose one in hematology and oncology, and she decided to hire a nanny to care for Tim. So things are kind of going, you know, at a steady pace, if you will. There's nothing new to report. 
um, in regards to what happened between 1982 and 1984. Um, they're kind of just, she's going through this fellowship program. She's making sure Tim is taken care of. But then in December of 1984, she ends up giving birth to her second child, Kate. So she takes a maternity leave with Kate as well. And this time when her um, leave is finished, she goes back to the residency that she uh, took a leave from, the hematology and oncology one. Um, and Kate stayed with that nanny. Now, there isn't a lot of information known about Kate specifically. And that's to keep her identity as secret as possible and protected because um, she is, you know, she was a child at the time. Um, and so we just protect children and we don't have conversations about them um, when we're trying to protect them from the crimes of their parent. So in 1985, Deborah finishes her hematology and oncology, oncology fellowship and Michael finishes his last year of his internal medicine residency. So she then decides that she's going to go into private practice in both fields, but she was not certified in either practice. Um, she never passed the board of examinations and she tried, but she failed because she never studied. And then her lack of wanting to, or her lack of studying finally caught up with her. She didn't do well in either practice. Um, her coworkers and patients both found her cold and unfeeling. And um, there's just no, <laughs> medicine is not something you can just wing, right? There's like too much crap that you have to remember like the stuff that my best friend has to know just to do what she does is ridiculous. Like it's crazy. Um, so I can't imagine just being like, yeah, I'm going to wing, I'm going to wing medicine, math, maybe internal medicine, hematology, oncology, probably not a good idea. Um, we should start making like quotes to put on Twitter for this. <laughs> I need somebody to like live tweet these, these silly little things. So Obviously, she's not successful in those areas because she didn't put forth the appropriate amount of effort that's required. She kind of um, <laughs> she kind of just was like, oh, dang. Yeah, poor me. Anyway, so she after they, you know, Michael's done with his residency, they decide they're going to move back to Kansas City in 86. So he starts working for a private medical practice and Deborah stays home until they basically can find a new nanny. So once the new nanny is found, Deborah decides she's going to go into private practice too, or she'll join a private practice. Um, Michael really thrived in Excel, in, and excelled in a private practice. He had um, done really well at school and in his residency, and it was just something that came natural to him. And he had great bedside manner. His patients just raved about him. So did his uh, fellow clinicians. They thought he was great. Now, Deborah, on the other hand, did not excel. Uh, she was really unliked by her coworkers and her patients, and she started abusing painkillers and sleeping pills again. So this time, Michael decides to confront her. And so Deborah's like, really sorry. I know this is not the right thing to do. I'm going to stop taking them. And we all know, uh, as we've seen, that that is not how it works when it comes to addiction. Some people have the strength, you know, or tenacity, I guess, to do it cold turkey. Um, but this is not something that you just stop and say, everything's fine. Everything's okay. That's not really dealing with the issue or the root at hand. Um, 
And so, yeah, it, it didn't work out great. So after a year of them being back in Kansas, Deborah ends up leaving the private practice she was working for and started her own one employee private practice. And she was finally successful because she wasn't working with or for anyone else. Um, but this really only lasted. She had this like minor success and you really kind of wish it would have worked out in a positive way. And that's where the story ended, but it's not. So she ends up becoming accidentally pregnant with her third child. Um, this child was named Kelly and she was born in 88. Uh, and again, Deborah took her maternity leave to be with her newborn. Now, because of this pregnancy, um, she wasn't able to, as they have, as they say, have the snap back. She wasn't able to lose the weight. So she gave up on her appearance um, completely. You know, she, she was just like, whatever, I am who I am. I accept it. But not in the way that's like affirming and like, I accept my, you know, like F your beauty standards, the thing that Tess Holiday started. It's not that. It was more just like, I give up. And this was really hard on her self-esteem. So she ends up developing a lot of uh, chronic pain after her third pregnancy. Um, she stopped running her private practice because she had a lot of chronic knee pain. So she decided to just stay home and care for her kids. And then she took a part-time job working from home on, you know, like medical peer reviews and processing Medicaid applications. And Michael was like, okay, at least she's finding something to do. But then he found out again that she was abusing drugs and again confronted her. And again, she gave the excuse or the response that she'll stop. which did not happen. So as their marriage progresses, you know, three kids in, Deborah continues to throw these tantrums. She'd get mad easily. She'd break stuff or harm herself. Like she'd hit herself in the head or beat her thighs. And because Michael was working really long hours, Deborah was stuck at home with the kids all day. And she started to talk really badly about Michael to the children. She'd undermine anything Michael told the children and she'd tell them how horrible their dad was. Um, and so Michael didn't do the, I think the best thing in that situation because that toxicity like runs through your home. It affects your children and it's really sad, but he decided that he would start working longer hours so that he could avoid Deborah. And even though he was tired of Deborah's behavior and attitude and conduct towards him, he really did want to try to work it out. And like, I can't blame the guy for like wanting to salvage his relationship and work on it. The problem is, and we were, I was just talking about this today, that the problem is, is that one person can't be doing all the work. Like you have to have the response from the other person who's in that same relationship that says like, yes, I want to continue. And yes, I want to work on this. Um, when it's one-sided, it, it's never going to end in a positive way. And I think that's a hard lesson sometimes for people who, um, you know, who love deeply. Um, and, and it's only one-sided. It's hard to watch and it's hard to kind of read about when it's something like this. Um, yes, thank you for mentioning the book. Melissa, Bitter Harvest is a great book about this. It's insane. So the first divorce filing happens in January of 1994. Michael finally is like, I've had enough. And he asked Deborah for a divorce. And he thought that 
it would be better for both of them if Michael wasn't living in the house because maybe he was the reason she was so angry. Um, and that, again, is just another, like, martyr thing. You know, like, maybe it's me, so I'm going to remove myself. And really, the issue is with Deborah. Like, Deborah's a problem for Deborah, and she can't, like, figure out why that's happening. So it's all her. So he ends up moving out of the family home and into an apartment. And they kept in contact with each other, shared custody of the children. He had, you know, great relationship with them, talked to them multiple times and saw them multiple times a week. Um, and so during this, during this separation, they kind of also have this reconciliation period where they really did try working on their marriage because they were only separated for four months. And for Michael, things seemed to be getting better since he was out of the house. And then when they started talking about getting back together, Michael and Deborah were like, listen, we need a bigger house. Feel like this house is very crampy. And she never kept it clean. So they picked a house in Prairie Village, but then backed out because Michael was worried about undertaking such a large financial commitment. They would just continue to live in the house that they chose until they found one that Michael felt financially comfortable purchasing. Well. Our first, like, hmm, this seems not like an accident, right? So on May 24th, 1994, the house that they were living in, it was on West 61st Street, caught fire while the family was out of the house. Um, Michael was at work. Deborah had taken the kids and the dog to Tim's soccer game. But the house was repairable, so the family moved into the apartment Michael had lived in during the separation. And it was like $85,000 in damages that were caused because of this fire. Now, they weren't able to determine a cause of the fire, but the insurance agency was like, eh, fire is an accident. Well, now they have the opportunity. Um, oh, my gosh, Shannon. Oh, I'm sorry. Um so now they have the opportunity after this big insurance windfall and payout to finally go after the house that Deborah initially wanted in Prairie Village. So they went back to looking at that house. Michael gave in and they were like, he was like, fine, we'll get the house. It's a six bedroom, um, like half million dollar mansion on Canterbury Lane. It had a pool, an exercise room for a car garage and more. Um, and so, you know, Michael was willing to make that sacrifice, if you will. Um, they had the insurance fallout, so he felt comfortable with the financial decision to to buy the house. But then he also made a personal decision related to his work. And he said that, you know what, I'm going to also try and work less hours. And Deborah was like, I'll try to learn how to cook and I'll keep the house clean. But that didn't last long at all. So by the end of 94, the marriage was back to the old ways and they were unhappy again. Now, in the summer of 95, Michael, Deborah, Tim, um, the three of them all went to Peru on a school trip and the other children ended up staying with family members. So while they were on the trip, Michael met Margaret Hacker and Margaret was a married woman whose children went to the same private school as Tim. She too was unhappy in her marriage to her husband. He was an anesthesiologist. His name was Dr. David Hacker. So after getting back from Peru, Michael and Margaret started having an affair in July. Listen, I am never a proponent for um, extramarital affairs. I'm always like, just move on, like leave the person. Um, obviously, if it's not a relationship that's like engaged in, you know, like 
domestic abuse or anything like that. Like if it's safe to leave, then just leave. Like, I don't understand. I don't understand. Um, cheating. I don't judge anybody. I'm just like, I don't get it. Uh, from a more like reasonable point of view, like, mm, why can't you just leave the person? Maybe it's a scared thing. Like I'm too scared to do it. I don't know. I don't know. I've never, I have never been in that situation, so I don't ever judge it, but I'm always just like curious to understand kind of like what goes on, um, in the mind to be like, mm, sure, I'm going to have an affair with this person. And it's, I, you know, I don't get it. I don't know. So now leads to the second divorce filing. Um, so the family comes home from Peru. Michael approaches Deborah again about getting a divorce, which is the right thing to do, right? And Deborah, Deborah is like, hell no. And told her, you know, she threw a fit. And then, of course, she engages her children and tells them that their father is leaving them. And so she also started drinking a lot more. She was actually drinking a liter or more of liquor a day. And she would honestly sometimes be passed out when the kids were at home. So because of Deborah's behavior, Michael wasn't comfortable like leaving the kids alone with her and, you know, didn't want to immediately move out of the home after asking for the divorce. Like he wanted to make sure his children were safe. So August 4th, 1995 rolls around. Deborah calls Michael and is like, I'm walking on the streets hoping somebody just kills me. That's what I'm hoping for. So Michael comes home, finds her in the house, and she tells Michael that she'd been hiding under a bed in the basement in order to make him worry, which is like such a shit thing to do. Um, but I think it also comes alongside with the addiction piece, right? Because we know that sometimes when people become addicts, that they become manipulative. Um, so she was abusing alcohol. She was abusing pills at this time, but she also had mental health issues um, that kind of went and play with it. So it's not all blamed on addiction in my book, but this is kind of one of the, one of the characteristics I would say um, that can happen when somebody's engaged or deep into their addiction. So the next week, Michael got sick after eating a chicken salad sandwich that Deborah had made him. Now he was nauseous, vomiting, had diarrhea. And he thought like, oh, maybe this is, from the trip to Peru, like maybe I contracted something and it's just not right. So um, he goes like seven days later, goes to the hospital or ends up getting hospitalized with life-threatening symptoms. And so while he's in the hospital, he ends up getting sepsis, but he ends up making a recovery and then released on um, August 25th. So that night he goes back to his prairie village house. He ate a home cooked meal from Deborah got sick again, and then was re-hospitalized and then released five days later. Now, um, now September 4th rolls around, right? This is not like, this is back to back. He continues to eat more food and I get it. Like you're sitting here right now, probably being like, dude, stop eating her freaking food. It's obviously her hindsight, right? I wouldn't think that my husband's trying to kill me. I'd be like, man, I have no idea. I can't keep food down. That's what I would think. Um, but now I will be extra vigilant and never trust anything he makes me. So September 4th rolls around, he eats more food prepared by Deborah, gets sick again. Then he's hospitalized, but then released uh, on the 11th. So doctors are like scratching their heads. They have no idea what's going on with Michael. He was never tested for poisoning, um, even though, even though his girlfriend, Margaret, was like, hey, 
do you think that maybe Deborah's poisoning you? You know, because how she gets really upset and she like hates you and stuff like that. Um, you think she could be the culprit of the poisoning? And Michael's like, no way, dude. There's no way she would do that. Well, September 25th, <laughs> Michael finds castor beans and empty vials of potassium chloride in Deborah's purse. And he's like, why do you have these in your purse? Because his initial thought is, oh, she's trying to complete suicide, uh, you know, like end her life. And he calls the police because he wants them to commit Deborah because he's like, listen, she's trying to do something here to herself. Like she's going to self-harm. She's self-harmed before. I don't think in a way, in a suicidal way, but she's obviously abusing alcohol, abusing pills. And then she has these um, things that could potentially end her life if taken together. So when they arrived, they found her in a drunk, profane, bizarre, but cooperative state. And so she was taken to the hospital, but said, listen, I'm not trying to kill myself, okay? Now, when Michael showed up, she, like, changed into the Tasmanian devil. Before she was calm, fine, like, no, 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 everything's good, I'm good. As soon as Michael walks in the door, she spits on him and calls him, a hey, cover your ears if you're children in the room and have this loud enough for them to hear. This is your warning. <laughs> she called him a fuckhole and told him, you'll get these kids over our dead bodies. And then she ends up leaving the ER without telling anyone. So she ends up being found a few hours later, walking home. Then she ends up going to the Menendron Clinic in Topeka, where she's diagnosed with major bipolar depression with suicidal impulses. But then she's home four days later. When I tell you that the mental health system in our country is crap, this is where it has failed her um, completely. Because there should be services available for people who have not been able to manage their mental health issues. Bipolar, schizophrenia, et cetera, those types of major medical, like mental health issues should be managed by professionals. Um, and so the fact that she was just sent home is just, a you know, a precipice of what happens kind of in the future. So um, Michael keeps talking and you know, thinking about the uh, castor beans that he had seen in Deborah's purse. And he's like, something's not right. You know, he's an analytical mind. He's a researcher by nature. So he ends up looking up the beans in an old textbook. And he he figured out that a person could extract ricin from the beans. And after figuring out that Deborah had been poisoning him with the castor beans, he's like, okay, time to go. And he moves into his own apartment in October of 1995. And at the time, he was definitely only concerned about his safety. He wasn't worried about his children. He never, ever thought that Deborah would hurt their children. Um, because often she, even, I don't know, I think, again, hindsight, right? So it's like, she didn't hurt your children physically, mentally, and um emotionally she abused them because of the things she said about you as a parent um so yeah safety wise in terms of not thinking like oh she wouldn't physically harm them i can see how he got there um but me i would be like listen you're not gonna be around my kids because you're not healthy right now um now michael's girlfriend 
also is like, "Mm, I think it's time I leave my husband too. So she ends up following suit and files for divorce from her husband. Now, unfortunately, a few days after the filing, Margaret's husband completed suicide by injecting himself with a combination of medicine. And so we only bring this up because Deborah later tells police to look into his death as if maybe Margaret or Michael had killed David, just like they may have started the fire um, that we're going to talk about later. So earlier, who was it? Who said it? Melissa? Yes, Melissa mentioned the book Bitter Harvest. So according to that book, some believe that Deborah drove David to kill himself because she constantly called him and asked him to help her break up Michael and Margaret. And she supposedly even called him three times the day before he died. Which is just like a lot, you know, and I think if I was the uh, partner who had been cheated on, I don't want to talk to the other one, like to the to the other scorned spouse. I'd be like, leave me alone. Lose my number. I'm over you people. Get away from me. Um, So it's unfortunate, but it is something that we thought was interesting to note. So now we're going to go into the house fire that happened at Prairie Village. So on October 24th, 1995, Kate ends up calling 911 at 1221 and hung up because she couldn't hear anything over the smoke alarms. The police showed up and called the fire department at 1227 a.m. Now, the fire department shows up and finds Deborah and 10-year-old Kate outside. They're both in their nightclothes. Kate told firefighters that her six-year-old sister, Kelly, and her 13-year-old brother, Timothy, were inside. Deborah stood next to Kate. She was very calm, as observed, and very cool, as observed by the um, officials on site. Now, two firefighters tried to search inside the home, but they couldn't because the structure was deemed unsafe. Now, when the fire was finally under control, only the garage and some stones were left because the fire had spread so quickly. And that immediately caused concerns for the responding officers and the firefighters. They were immediately suspicious. So Deborah and Michael are taken in for separate questioning. And so this is Deborah's recount of the Prairie Village house fire. She said that it had been a normal day like any other. Her children went to school, then attended their after-school activities, and the family was all home by 9 p.m. She had one or two drinks after dinner, and then she went to bed. Between 10 and 11 p.m., she left her room to talk to Tim in the kitchen before he went to bed. Her daughters were already in bed asleep. Deborah said before she fell asleep at 11.30, she talked to Michael because he told her someone paged him from the house. She also told police she was going through a divorce with Michael, but she wasn't upset. She was actually looking forward to starting a new life without him. Now, she woke up after midnight when she heard the fire alarm go off and she thought that it was like a false alarm. And so she, which I don't understand. I mean, what? okay. So she tried to turn it off with the control panel in her room, but it wouldn't turn off. So she opens the door and finds the hallway completely covered in smoke. She couldn't see anything. And so she's like, cool, I'm going to go. And she ends up leaving the house via the deck that's connected to her bedroom. Now, when they had an intercom system in the house, which is, this is really kind of the most devastating um, part, I think, 
out of the whole thing. Oh my God, it breaks my heart every time. <sighs> so when she heard Tim ask over the intercom what he should do, Deborah told him to stay in the house and wait for the firefighters to rescue him. Then she went to her neighbor's door and asked them to call 911. She went back to the house and found Kate, who had climbed through her bedroom window onto the roof of the garage, then jumped and landed on the ground. Deborah was calm, and she didn't cry in her interview. She was talkative, and uh, I think the police described her as cheerful. She immediately referred to her children in the past tense and referred to them by ages instead of their names. You can actually hear this audio on YouTube. She would say things like, he used to be my 13-year-old. She wouldn't say, my son, Tim, he's 13. He would, she would say, basically, like, very clinical, right, that you would expect to see in an autopsy report, like, 13-year-old, white male, death by blah, blah, blah. Like, that's how um, she talked about him. Now, by 5.30, a detective came to the station and said that Tim and Kelly were found deceased. Deborah got really mad when she heard this and told the firefighters or told the police that the firefighters didn't try to even save her children. She ended up becoming uncooperative and demanded that she and Michael see the remains of their house. And she also demanded to be able to tell Michael herself that our babies are dead. She was released early on um the like on uh, October 24th after the questioning so that's her recollection and her retelling of events so michael's recount of the prairie house fire or prairie village house fire is this on the day of the fire michael took the day off he took two thirds of the children to the hockey game he dropped the children off at home around 8.45, then had dinner with Margaret and left at 11.30 p.m. He drove to his apartment and called Deborah. She paged him at 10.35 to see what he was doing, and then again five minutes later, and then a third time. They end up talking on the phone at 11.40 p.m., and she sounded drunk. He told her that she needed to get her stuff together or he would call Child Protective Services. He told her that he thought she was drinking too much and not caring for their children, and he told her, he knew she had poisoned him and that he might have to call social services to protect the children if she didn't get it together. After the phone call, Michael watched TV in his apartment until he got a phone call from the neighbor about the fire at 1225 a.m. And he heads straight for the Prairie Village house upon hearing that news. Michael ends up telling the police he thought Deborah might have set the house fire um, to gain money from the insurance, but he never thought that she would hurt her, the children. His eyes were red. His voice was trembling during the talk with police. And he seemed believable to them. Now, police also questioned Kate. She was interviewed um, by the detectives while her grandparents sat in the room with her. And so she said that she saw smoke entering her room. She opened her bedroom door and called out to Tim. And then she closed her door and called 911, but she couldn't hear the dispatcher because the alarms were too loud. So she hung up the phone. She then crawled out of her bedroom window onto the garage. She saw her mother and her mother told her to jump. And so Kate jumped and landed safely on the ground, as we know. Um, Tony, are you kidding me? That's what you join us as we're talking about children dying in a house fire. You want to come on 
Spotify Live and talk about the greatest show on YouTube. Boy, get out of here. Banned from this room. Read the room, dummy. <laughs> like, are you kidding? Shame on you, Tony. Dummy. He's all like, oh, this amazing YouTuber. <laughs> but um, also, kids are dying in this story, so uh, not the appropriate time. Ugh. That's all. Today has been a weird day with meeting really strange individuals, and I'm just going to say, like, whatever, sage your houses today if you believe in it. Say a prayer. Wish for some good juju because something is going on, and it is a strange day. Back to this case. After douche crack over here came in. I'm sure he's a great guy, but it was poor timing and very dumb. All right. So after the questioning, Deborah had nowhere to go. And Michael was like, girl, you are not staying in my apartment. So you need to go. He ends up giving her cash so she can get to uh, a hotel room. And um, her divorce lawyer ends up finding her there in a distraught state. And then she ends up being transported to a hospital because of her emotions being um, unstable, if you will. So Michael immediately files for divorce and for emergency custody of Kate. So temporary custody is given to Michael's parents and Deborah has supervised visits while Michael did not have to have supervision. So they go into the arson investigation and the report ends up getting released in November. So about two months after the fire happens, authorities ruled out common causes of accidental fires. They actually found that there were two small fires that had occurred, but they weren't connected to a big fire in that area. They said that the fire started in the doorway of the master bedroom and that the door was open during the fire because they saw poor patterns on the ground floor and the second floor, and there were multiple ports, points of origin. So that meant that the flammable liquid was poured there and that the liquid covered many areas on the ground floor. It blocked the stairway from the second floor to the ground floor, and it covered much of the hallway on the second floor and stopped at the door of the master bedroom. The liquid had soaked into the carpeting in the hallway, leading to the children's bedrooms. And they really couldn't figure out what the liquid was that was used, but they knew that at least three to 10 gallons were used. So as a result, the report concluded that the fire was arson. Now, the interesting thing about this is that there, um, investigators found a book in the master bedroom that was called necessary lies. And this is a book about children dying in a house fire that was intentionally set. Like, hello? So police later find that Deborah also borrowed other books from the library about intrafamilial homicide. So obviously they're going into a murder investigation at this point. Now, police call in a new task force to turn the investigation into one for homicide and they took samples of Michael and Deborah's hair and clothing to find any possible remnants of an accelerant. Now, they showed nothing on either person's clothing. Michael had no hair singeing. Deborah's hair had been cut twice since the fire, but did show significant singeing. Now, this is important because Deborah said she was never near the flame, so she wouldn't have actually had any impact. You know how they show like when a barbecue explodes in your face and you get you lose your eyebrows like that's kind of what they expect your arm hair will be singed your eyebrows hair on your body etc um so they wouldn't expect to see that on deborah but they did now 
neighbors said that when she had come to their door asking her, asking them to call 911, her hair was actually wet. And so police were like, okay, now we're looking at Deborah as a suspect. So Timothy and Kelly's bodies were recovered the next morning when the house was cool enough to finally search. Um, It found that Kelly had died in her bed from smoke inhalation. Timothy had died near or in his bedroom from smoke inhalation and heat. It, It looked like he tried to get out of his bedroom, but was unsuccessful. And his body ended up falling through the floor and landed near the kitchen because of that. Um, when Michael told police of his previous illnesses and, you know, finding the castor beans, police did some further digging and they found that Deborah bought the beans um, in Olathe on um, September 20th or the 22nd. Um, a few days after the fire, the funerals for Tim and Kelly were held. So about a month later, Deborah was dropping Kate off at ballet practice when she was arrested. Now, at her arraignment, Deborah was charged with two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Tim and Kelly, two counts of attempted first-degree murder for almost killing Kate in the fire and Michael via poisoning, and one count of aggravated arson. She was held on a $3 million bond, which was the highest bond in Kansas City, Missouri at the time, or history at the time. Um, (laughs) Now, Michael's health obviously had been impacted because you don't just get poisoned and are like, hey, I'm great. And there are some underlying effects. So Michael underwent surgery in November of 1995 to treat an aneurysm he suffered because of the poisonings. Um, He underwent testing between November 17th and the 22nd, and those proved that he had indeed been poisoned with ricin. Now, a preliminary hearing begins the following year in 1996. The prosecution and the defense present their case to see if Deborah could even stand trial. At the hearing, a previous nanny for the family testified that in 1990, Tim told her that he felt like his parents' divorce was his fault. He told the nanny, Phyllis Greedo, that he hated his dad for the divorce and would kill him. He'd burn the house down and everyone in it. Four other witnesses testified about seeing Tim set the fires as well as talk about or seeing him set fires and talking about um, bombs. And I think this is also kind of the worst thing outside of killing her children that Deborah did, which is that she supported a defense that blamed her child when she should have. I mean, she can't take the responsibility because of, you know, the narcissism that goes along with it. Um, but this was an important note for the defense because their theory was that the fire was started by Tim. They said that Tim hated his dad and had an unnatural fascination with fire. And so the defense said that the poisoning was actually also by Tim, who did a lot of cooking in the home. And Michael testified that he couldn't be sure that Deborah was the one who had prepared his poisoned food. He said maybe Tim had fixed some of the food, but um yeah, and I, and I get what he's saying. He's not obviously blaming his kid. He's just like, maybe he was the one who prepared it, but Deborah poisoned it. I don't know. I can't say that it was all Deborah, you know. Well, she ends up getting arraigned February 8th, and the trial is supposed to start that summer. Michael undergoes surgery December of 1995 for an abscess on his brain that was caused by the poisonings, and the doctors were afraid that he wouldn't survive, and so were the prosecutors. So they pre-filmed his testimony. 
Now, luckily, he did survive that surgery and was able to testify in person. So the prosecution requested the death penalty for Deborah. She was ordered to undergo psychological evaluations where she was found competent to stand trial. But Dr. Marilyn Hutchinson expressed concerns about her state of mind on the night of the fire. And after hearing about her evaluations, the judge ruled Deborah would stand trial and could have one trial for all the charges. Now, they, of course, go into the plea bargain, right? Because death penalty cases are expensive to try in a court of law. Um, so typically to avoid the costs, they'll enter into plea negotiations. So while they were talking with her lawyers, or while Deborah was talking with her lawyers, she told them that she did set the fire, but that she didn't pour any accelerants and really didn't mean to kill her children. She also told her lawyers that she and Tim had poisoned Michael together. So after hearing this, her lawyers are like, okay, well, that's not great for our defense. So maybe you should take a plea deal because of the um, physical evidence against you. And the DA at the time, his name was Paul Morrison. He was okay with the plea because he was like, listen, this would be the best way to protect Kate. Ultimately, she's really the person who needs to be protected, um, but still punish Deborah and Michael being the gracious person that he is, despite going through all of these crazy things, was also okay with the plea. So as a part of her plea, Deborah pled no contest to all the charges in order to avoid the death penalty. She knew that her minimum sentence would be 40 years without the possibility of parole. So May 30th, 1996, she sentenced by the judge to uh, two 40-year prison sentences for murder two eight-year sentences for the attempted murder charges, and four years for the arson charge. All of the charges would be served concurrently. So at the sentencing, one of the psychologists, Dr. Marilyn Hutchinson, again, um, evaluated Deborah. And so she testified. The psychologist said that Deborah was extremely immature, that she had the mat emotional maturity of a one-year-old. She was a grown woman pretending to be grown up. She didn't have the ability to cope with adult things like most people. Um, so March 22nd, obviously, um, she had the right to appeal. That plea bargain didn't excuse her um, right to appeal. So March 22nd, 2004, this is what, 10 years after the fact, Deborah files um, the instant motion to withdraw her plea as to all counts except the attempted first-degree murder of her husband. She said that if the new advances in fire investigation that were available now had been used in 1995, there would not have been enough evidence against her to charge her. And her motion was denied because the judge found that Deborah's new evidence was insufficient. So 2007 rolls around. Deborah again files a petition challenging the judge's decision against her new evidence. And her petition is again dismissed 2008. So. 2014 rolls around. Deborah is still not giving up. She petitions that her 40-year sentence was rendered unconstitutional by a 2000 Supreme Court ruling where it was found that sentences like the one Deborah got must be considered by a jury and not just handed out by a judge. So in 2015, a judge ruled that the 2013 Supreme Court ruling could not be applied retroactively to Deborah's case. Plus, Deborah had entered a plea agreement and knew what sentencing she was getting or knew what sentence she was getting. So it's not like it was a surprise to her. And she was like, oh, shit, 80 years. Are you kidding? No, she knew. 
So she's housed in the Topeka Correctional Facility. And according to the KDOC, she's currently working in a job, though we're not sure where. Now, her earliest release date is listed as November 21st, 2035. Um, When she started her sentence, Deborah talked to Kate once a week on the phone, and she also wrote to Kate, but still talked bad about Michael. She told Kate that Tim poisoned Michael, um, and then Deborah (laughs) wrote to Michael as well. So everyone else, Kate moves in with Michael. Michael and Margaret split up because Michael felt like he had to pick between Kate and Margaret. So obviously he chose his child. Michael continued to have more surgeries to treat the injuries he had sustained from the poisoning. And in the year following his first poisoning, Michael had 11 hospitalizations. Um, Obviously, the Prairie Village house was completely destroyed in the fire. The remains um, were demolished and neighbors who were nearby ended up purchasing the plot next door to it. So that is the case of Deborah Green. Now, I know we didn't get to talk about Drew Peterson tonight, but I felt like this was also a very compelling case if you weren't familiar with it. Again, Bitter Harvest by Ann Rule is a really, really great book that delves deeper into the case. We can only cover so much in about an hour. So um, yeah, if you definitely want to read that book, you can also pick it up on Audible. Feel free to do that. As a reminder, you can always find me on my podcast, True Crime Fan Club, on Crimes of Passion, the Spotify original from Parcast, and the It's Haunted What Now podcast. And then every Tuesday on True Crime Convos, you guys, on Spotify. Bye, friends. Okay, fan club members. As I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFC Podcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, a satanic panic survivor. Content editing by Brittany Martinez. Produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at WeTalkOfDreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. While you're waiting for the next episode, check out some of my pod friend shows, 